All right, y'all can have a seat. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Catalyst. My name's JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And I said uh, in the little pre-show that I was going to tell you a little bit about my wife's family. Uh, so again, I always thought I came from a pretty big family. I have something like, uh, on both sides, like 30 first cousins. Uh, so I always thought that was, you know, pretty impressive. Um, but my, uh, when I started dating my wife, uh, you know, I started meeting her family. I think I met her mom first. I met her brother because we were all going to the same university. Uh, met his, his girlfriend that he was dating there. He's now married to. Uh, met her dad, you know. And, uh, and I remember the first time I went home with her. It was for her grandpa's 80th birthday slash the big family reunion that they do every year. So uh, her dad is one of six siblings and then his dad is one of 10 siblings. And this was back in 2008. We had been dating for about four months. Uh, and she, she took me to the big family reunion. And it turned out that they had been, um, or it was her grandpa's 80th birthday, and then also the, the annual family reunion. So at the, at the Friday night birthday party for grandpa, it was him, all nine of his siblings, and then all of his descendants, so his six kids, their spouses, and then all of the cousins. So there were, I don't know, probably 40 or 50 people there. And it was my first time meeting like 95% of them. So, uh, you know, everyone wants to meet me because I'm Amanda's new boyfriend that she's brought home for the first time. And, uh, I'm, you know, so it's like that quick, fast, like boom, 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 just meeting person after person, trying to, trying to remember names, uh, not even bothering to worry about who's attached to whom, right? Like whose, whose kid is whose aunt and uncle and all this kind of like everywhere. Uh, I was literally just trying to tread water and remember names. Everyone was super nice, uh, you know, really, really good time. The next day was the big family reunion. And I found out this is something they do every year because of those 10 siblings of Amanda's grandpa, nine of them still live in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, one of them moved to Arizona. So, so every year they would do a big family reunion where everyone would come together. But like once every 10 years or so, they would take a, a big family picture. And so you could miss the family reunion, you know, if you didn't make it uh, every year or so, whatever, that was okay. But, but on picture year, you had to be there, you were out of the family. Like, it was a big deal, right? And this just so happened to be picture year. I was not in the picture because I, I hadn't put a ring on it yet. Uh, so you're not allowed in the picture if you're just a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, which is fine, right? Not offended by that. I understand that rules are rules. Uh, so, so I showed up after the picture. What I had not realized was that when they do the family picture, all of the patriarchs or matriarchs, like Amanda's grandpa, they all wear white shirts. So I want you to imagine a, a row of basketball bleachers, and down in the front, there are 10 uh, cute little old folks wearing white shirts, okay? And then behind them are all of their descendants, all wearing a particular color of shirt, keyed to whichever patriarch or matriarch they're descended from. So Amanda and all of her cousins and aunts and uncles and everyone wore orange shirts that year. And then there was, you know, a family that had blue shirts and a family that had teal shirts and a family that had yellow shirts, you know, all. And so you look at this giant picture and there were over 300 people in this picture who were all related by blood or marriage to uh, these 10 matriarchs and patriarchs. It was... Uh, they, I mean, they had to sit on basketball bleachers in the high school. That was the only place big enough to, like, gather them all to take the picture. Um, 
So I show up after they take this picture, and of course there are all these colored shirts running around, and Amanda, who uh, very much like me, is very much like an extrovert and loves to just, you know, connect people to other people, she was saying, and this is cousin so-and-so, and they're related to this person, and then, oh, you're my, and, and I finally just had to stop her and say, look, I literally just met all the people in orange shirts yesterday, like 12 hours ago. I can't, okay? I can only focus on the orange shirts right now, that's it. And, and, and I'm going to try really hard to remember even all their names and try to get those stuck. And she kind of looked a little dejected. She was like, okay, that's fine. I was like, you can introduce me to whoever you want, of course. But like, I'm, I'm just telling you, I only had the capacity to focus on the orange shirts right now. Uh, so, so that was, and it was, it was great. It was fine, right? So uh, <laughs> I tell that story because I, I always find it interesting how we meet other people's families. And, and, you know, I think whether you're in a romantic relationship with someone or not, I always enjoy meeting the parents or the siblings or the cousins of my friends, of people that I care about, because uh, they, know, they know this person that you care about in a way that you don't, right? They have a completely different relationship history with them, and oftentimes it helps you get to know that person in a new and fascinating way. Um, but I'm willing to bet that most of us have had a kind of experience uh, like I was sharing in that family reunion, right? Feeling overwhelmed, feeling like there's a little bit too much for you to, for you to keep track of and, and need, just need something to hold on to. And I was thinking about that story this morning uh, because we're at the end of this summer that we've spent studying the Enneagram together. And I know that for some of us, it's kind of felt like drinking from a fire hose, uh, where we're learning all these different numbers, all of these different, you know, uh, triads and core lies and, and ways to flourish and all that kind of stuff. And, and s- I know some of us, uh, who, who you maybe already knew what Enneagram number you were coming into this. You were, you were ready for it, you were here for it, and you've really enjoyed it. But I know a lot of us uh, still are struggling to figure out what number we are, still are really wondering how this really helps us uh, look more like Jesus in the world, and we're feeling that kind of sense of being overwhelmed with all of this information. Uh, and so I wanted to respect that. I wanted to honor that as we come to the end of the series this summer by inviting you to take a step back with me and kind of take a deep breath. Uh, so what we're going to do today, we're going to sing a lot of songs, we're going to celebrate, we're going to review what we've done this summer with Encanto and the Enneagram, and, and we're going to end today with a simple celebration of the fact that all of us are part of God's family, and that's something that is worth enjoying together, celebrating together, uh, and it's something that hopefully can engender in us a sense of belonging and a sense of community, not a sense of feeling overwhelmed uh, and, and put out. So uh, without, without too much more ado, I want to hand it back over to the worship team uh, and, and sing a couple of songs with you. So uh, just one last word I want to say to you is welcome. Uh, if you're a guest with us, whether you're here in the building or whether you're worshiping with us virtually, we're just really glad that you're here with us. And, and the only thing we're going to ask of you today is that you feel open uh, to what God might want to say to you today, because we believe God gathered us here, and we believe that God is speaking to us, and if we'll be open, we'll hear something. So I want to hand it over to Nathan and the worship team uh, and invite you. If you're here in the building, would you stand with me? Uh, we're going sing a couple songs together. Past piece, the I, I am who you say I am, because uh, I, this summer, I think this has been the biggest challenge for us as we've, as we've spent the summer pursuing spiritual transformation, is to uh, overcome these core lies that we've discovered that are, are deep within our spirits. And so, so if, if you're joining us for the first time today, we're at the end of a, a whole summer journey. We're so glad you're here. Uh, but uh, let me try to catch you up a little bit. For the summer, we have been spending time with a spiritual formation tool called the Enneagram. 
And on its surface, the Enneagram can look a lot like a personality profile, like Myers-Briggs or StrengthsFinder or something like that. Uh, because in the Enneagram, uh, your, your goal is to identify a number, one through nine, that is your number. So I'm a three, Nathan's a four, right? We, we have all kind of figured out what our number is. And what that number represents, and, and this, is, this is actually why it's not a personality profile exactly, what that number represents is a, a shadow self, a persona that we develop usually when we were pretty young in response to a core lie that we came to believe was true about ourselves. And so we developed a, a persona, a shadow self, to protect us from a world that was hostile in some way. And, uh, and so the, the deep goal of spiritual formation is to uh, learn to put away that shadow self and learn to live in the light of God's truth, learn to live in the light of God's love for us. And th that's what the Enneagram helps us do. It's like a diagnostic tool that helps us articulate and define what our shadow self is, not so that we can live fully into it. That's what personality profiles do, right? If you're a Myers-Briggs and you're an ENFJ or something like that, the goal of, of the personality profiles is to help you be that more fully. Enneagram's kind of the opposite. Uh, as, as spiritual director Ian Cron says, while personality profiles tell you who you really are, the Enneagram tells you who you're really not. And so the idea is once we've, once we've identified this shadow self, uh, we, we learn not how to be that more fully, but how to, uh, how to put that shadow self away, how to shine the light of God's loving truth on it so that we can live as our full authentic selves uh, into the world. So as a way to help us this summer, we spent time with the, uh, the movie Encanto, uh, which uh, weirdly, I, I think it has to be on purpose, uh, all the members of La Familia Madrigal have these different powers that correlate really well with the nine Enneagram types. And so we, we've been using them as a way to help us understand these Enneagram numbers more fully, and again, ultimately help us uh, see ourselves reflected more fully, to understand that shadow self and to, to find healing. So uh, in the first part of our message today, what I want to do is just review the nine numbers, go through uh, who they are, uh, what their core lie is, and what the healing message that we need to hear is uh, as, as we try to live into the truth of God's love for us. Uh, then we're going to take a little break. We're going to worship together and just, again, just sort of affirm who God is and how God loves us. And then we're going to end uh, kind of back where we started by talking about the shadow work that is before for us and what it really looks like for us to uh, take spiritual transformation seriously. So uh, let's get started. Let's start with, uh, so, so Enneagram is divided into three triads uh, based on a core emotion that governs them. So we're going to start with the anger triad. Uh, first Enneagram number that we started with uh, clear back in June was Abuela, the Enneagram 8. Uh, Enneagram 8s are anger externalizers, okay? The core lie that they came to believe as a child was that the world is a hostile place where only the strong survive. So they build this tough shell around themselves. They become kind of fighters against the world. Uh, their deadly sin is lust, not in the sense of, a, not, in, not necessarily like in a sexual way, but in a way where they lust for intensity, they lust for experience. The 8s eights, eights are super, super intense people. Uh, and so that, that, that drive and that intensity is something that can be their undoing. And so the healing messages that eights need to hear is that trustworthy people do exist and the risk is worth it. Okay, eights have to learn how to open that tough exterior up and, and let people in to that vulnerable, soft core uh, that's there. That, that, that's difficult for eights to do, but it's really the only way eights can find true healing. Okay, uh, The next character that we met was the main character of 
uh, Encanto, who is Mirabelle. Mirabelle is a perfect example of an Enneagram 9, which are called the Peacemakers. Okay, the, uh, the core lie that Peacemakers learned when they were young was that your wants, opinions, desires, and presence don't matter. Okay, that's why Enneagram 9s are anger avoiders. They stuff, 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 do everything they can to keep from feeling or expressing anything because they were taught that those things don't matter. And so their signature sin is sloth. Again, not necessarily in terms of laziness, which is what we usually associate with sloth, but in just that sense that, that Enneagram 9s uh, are very slow to do the things that they know are good for them, and positive for them, and healing for them because they're so disconnected from their own wants and desires. Uh, so the healing message for Enneagram 9s is we see you and your life matters. That's something that nines need to hear in order to heal, in order to become whole and healthy. Um, the last number in the anger triad is the one, and they're the anger internalizer. So we often call these the perfectionist, and in Encanto, they're embodied by Isabella, the perfect daughter, right, the golden child. So the core lie that ones believe is that to be loved, you have to be good and do things right. So ones have this, this very strong moral code that they operate by, and they get really angry whenever other people don't abide by it, whenever other people don't operate by it. Uh, their core, their deadly sin is wrath, which often manifests itself as resentment. Ones can often carry a lot of resentment towards people who don't live according to the same internalized moral code that they have. And so the healing message that ones need to hear is, I don't need to be perfect to be loved and to be good right? I can be received just as I am, warts and all, and that's good for me. That's what ones need to hear. So that's the anger triad, right? The externalizer, the eighth challenger, the avoider, the nine, the peacemaker, and then the internalizer, the one, the perfectionist. Uh, all of those are responding to anger in different ways, and they all need healing in different ways. Uh, we're going to see that same pattern played out in the second triad, the shame triad, the twos, threes, and fours. Okay, the first is two, the helper. And we actually, in, um, in, in Kanto, we meet a really, really healthy helper, uh, Julieta, Mirabelle's mom, the one who can heal people with her magical pastries, right? Um, the, the core lie that twos believe is that healing or expressing your own needs will lead to rejection and humiliation. So, so twos spend their whole lives working to help other people and to prove that they are useful and lovable. Okay, but the core, the, core, uh, the signature sin for them is pride. It's this, uh, and it, it's weird to think that, right? But the, it manifests that way because twos will never express their own wants and needs. Uh, they, they spend so much time taking care of everyone else and they never let anyone take care of themselves. So it's really the sort of prideful, um, I don't want anyone to know me, I don't need anyone's help uh, that, that manifests in a surprising way for twos. Uh, the healing message that they need to hear is very simple. You're wanted, right? We want you here. You don't have to do anything to earn our love and our affection. We want you, twos. You belong with us. Okay, it's a really simple message. Uh, next, the, the shame avoiders are the threes. Uh, this is Louisa, the performer, right? She's the strong one that can do everything, that works really hard. Uh, and when the magic starts to fade in the movie, she's afraid that if she can no longer do things, that no one's going to want her anymore, right? That the only reason anyone in the village cares about her is because of what she's able to do for them. That's a classic three. Uh, the core lie that threes believe is you are what you do. So threes are called the performers or the achievers because, uh, again, I'm a three, right? We're constantly doing things to be loved. Uh, when I had COVID a couple weeks ago, 
I was just laying on the couch. I couldn't do anything. I was super tired. A friend of mine texted me and said, hey, how are you doing? I said, well, you know, I got COVID. I'm real tired. And he said, well, I, I want you to rest. I want you to take care of yourself. And as a, uh, you know, one of those jokes, it's not really a joke, right? I said, I'm trying, but you know, I'm afraid if I don't publish anything or put anything out there, the world will forget I, forget I exist, right? That's a three, right? We're afraid if we're not constantly doing something, then no one will care about us. Because why would anyone care about us, right? We're in the shame triad. Uh, our deadly sin is deceit. Threes are chameleons. We can kind of read people and we know what they want. And so we can kind of become what they think, what we think they want. We can become what they approve of. Uh, we, can, we can just sort of morph ourselves in any situation. And the healing message that we need is you're loved just for who you are. Very similar to the twos, right? It's not what you do. It's just you. That's who we love. That's who we care about. Last in the shame triad are the shame internalizers. These are the fours, the romantics. Uh, this is Tia Peppa in the movie, right? Her mood controls the weather. She feels so many feelings all the time. They're very intense. Uh, the core lie that fours believe is there's something wrong with or missing from me. Uh, there's something deep inside the fours that they feel is never going to be completed. And so they, they turn that shame inward and are constantly uh, feeling. So you get a lot of artists and poets that are fours, right? They have these strong feelings. Uh, the deadly sin of fours is envy, and again, it's not any specific thing that you have. It's this like ineffable sort of wholeness that other people seem to have that fours don't have that they just want. And uh, again, because it's because it's so intangible, because it's so indescribable, it's it's equally unobtainable. Fours will never get that thing that they think they need to complete themselves. Because why? Because the healing message is there's nothing wrong with you. Actually, there's nothing wrong with you, fours. That that feeling that you have is a false feeling. And that's the healing message you need to hear is that you're actually good. You're good. You're good. You're good. Okay? So that's the, that's the shame triad, right? The externalizers, the helpers, the avoiders, the performers, and the internalizers, the romantics, or the shame triad. Last but not least is the fear triad. And again, same thing here, right? We have the fear externalizer, uh, which are called the investigators. This is represented by cousin Dolores, who can hear everything, right? Fives see the world as frightening, and so they want to collect information to protect themselves. The, the, the core lie that fives believe is that you're not capable of handling the demands of life and relationships. Uh, and so fives spend their lives trying to uh, collect, 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 and gain enough things uh, to protect themselves, to keep themselves safe, uh, to protect them from a world that, that says they don't have enough. They try to acquire enough. Okay? And so the, the healing message that fives need to hear is you have enough, not just to survive, but to thrive, right? You have enough, you are enough, you're good, you're going to be okay. Uh, next is the, uh, the loyalists, this is Bruno, right? We, we had to talk about Bruno and Encanto. And so uh, sixes believe that the world is unsafe. That is a message they heard as little kids. Uh, and again, maybe that was when their parents divorced or they, they had an unexpected move or something like that. But they learned that the world is an unsafe place. And so they spend their lives trying to avoid that uh, uncertainty uh, by planning, 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 planning. Sixes are always aware of who the authority figures are in the room and how to overcome them, uh, how to either, uh, either rebel against them right, or, or follow them almost slavishly. Uh, the deadly sin for sixes is fear, uh, which manifests as worry. And we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Bruno, right, that um, there's a difference between the sort of clinical anxiety that we need to deal with with our counselors and our medical professionals and that sort of like constant baseline worry that everything's going to constantly fall apart. 
Uh, the healing message that sixes need to hear is you are safe. You're going to be okay. Right? Sixes need to hear that in order to heal. And then last but not least is our fear internalizers. This is Camilo, the enthusiast. Uh, sevens as little kids learned you're on your own. No one will support you or care for you. And so sevens as kids developed this sort of never-never land in their heads where they would just spend their whole time sort of floating above their problems, disconnected from the reality of their, their uh, scary, maybe painful world. Uh, seven signature sin is gluttony. And again, it's not like not necessarily like for food, like we normally think of gluttony, but for experience. Sevens just want more, 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 uh, more things to experience, more trips to do, more stuff, anything that will keep them on the surface and from having to dive down into their feelings, right? Sevens don't want it. They can do that, but only on their terms. Sevens don't like to be around what we think of as negative emotions for very long at all. And so the healing message that sevens need is you're not on your own, right? God will take care of you. You're going to be okay. As we talked about last week, right, you, sevens can even brave the depths of emotion, the depths of pain and suffering, because God is already present there and will care for those sevens. So there we go. All nine numbers, the three different triads, right, the internalizer, the avoider, and the externalizer in each one. Uh, and I, my hope is that throughout this series, you've had a sense of where you fall, which number most resonates with you, which core lie you maybe recognize that you believe, and that you've been able to grasp on that healing message. Um, I know that presenting it all like we just did is a lot, and it can feel overwhelming. And so, uh, as I said earlier, what we want to do today is just kind of take a step back and say, no matter who you are, no matter what member of La Familia Madrigal you might be, uh, even if you're not sure yet who you are, uh, you have a place here. You, are, you have a place where you belong at Catalyst. And again, I'm not just talking to the people in the building. I'm talking to folks virtual too. I don't, I don't care if you're all the way across the country from us or something like that. You belong with us. You're part of Catalyst. God has called you to be a part of us, and God has a place for you here. And so I want to turn it back over to the worship team uh, because, um, again, I, I just think... I don't know, maybe this is just me, the nerd talking, but like when I get into Enneagram stuff, it's so easy for me to just like go all the way down the rabbit hole and end up with 75 Enneagram tabs open on my browser and reading all this different stuff and, and sort of just lose the true, simple reality that we're all part of God's family, that we're all loved, and that God is inviting us all on a journey of healing. And that's the ultimate point. I don't actually care if by the end of this series you can quote uh, in Kanto or sing all the songs or, you know, or whatever. That's great if you can, right? But I don't care about that. I don't care if you know every Enneagram number and you can list off every core lie and all that kind of stuff. Like what I actually care about is that you're closer to God and that you look more like Jesus at the end of the summer than you did at the beginning of the summer. So I want to move back into worship and just sing and celebrate this God uh, who invites us to know and to be known. So would you stand with me here, especially if you're in the building, stand if you're uh, virtual with us. Let's, let's, uh, let's sing again together. You can have a seat again. Um, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to take us back to where we started actually with uh, the summer because, uh, I mean, like I, like I mentioned earlier, I, I follow a lot of Enneagram stuff and I, I just really enjoy it. And I, I see the same... Um, the same mistake happening over and over and over and over. And that's where 
uh, once we identify our numbers, we treat that more as, uh, again, as a personality profile than as a diagnosis of a, a shadow self. We think, oh, I'm a three, so I want to be a really good three, right? I want to re be really good at that. And it's, instead of understanding that the three is a way to diagnose a shadow self, a shadow persona, that the three is not who I am, the three is the persona that I've created to protect my authentic self from the world. And that I'm I, the real me, the true me, the, tr the, the me that God created, the me that God loves, the me that God wants to flourish in the world, it's actually hiding behind the three, right? The three is not who I really am. And so uh, Enneagram work is uh, moving towards health is not about being the best three I can be. It's about learning to, learning to understand where those negative reactions are coming from. And when I see the three things in me reacting and coming forward, uh, to be able to, to say no to those things. Um, so I, I want to go back uh, to the scripture that we started this whole series with. If you have a Bible, you can turn with us to 1 John chapter 1. And if you grab one of our Bibles we have here at Catalyst, page 743. Feel free to keep that Bible. Uh, so 1 John is a letter that was written by, uh, he calls himself elder, which means he was probably some kind of pastor or spiritual leader for this, this group of people that he's writing to. And uh, if you read all of 1 John, which I would encourage you to do this week, it's a very short letter. It doesn't take very long to read, it's, and it's beautiful. It's really simple, elegant uh, writing. Uh, make, it makes these makes these truths really easy to grasp even as they are difficult to believe, right? And so it's, it's, it's a really good way to introduce ourselves to the overwhelming, relentless love of God that we just sang about. Uh, you can really hear when you read the whole letter, uh, it sounds very much like a, a father or a grandfather who just deeply loves his, his kids or his grandkids, and he wants them to live these beautiful, healthy, flourishing lives. And so that's what he's writing about. And uh, he uses the metaphor of light and darkness, which is what's common to all of the, you know, it's common in the Gospel of John, all three of John's letters. It's common in the Revelation. Uh, so it's this kind of theme that works through all these different texts. And uh, so it makes it really good to talk about our shadow work as well. So again, I, I just want to, I want to review these verses with us and just kind of end our time together with some meditation on what it looks like for us as a congregation to move towards health. So here's what, here's what John says. He says, this is the message that we heard from Jesus, and now that we declare to you that God is light, and there's no darkness in God at all. So we're lying if we say that we have fellowship with God, but we go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. Uh, there, John's saying, right, um, we can't say that we love God and continue to live in our shadows, right, continue to, to let our personas protect us from the world. That's not how that worked, right? Uh, a, a genuine flourishing relationship with God is one where we have the courage to live in the light of God's truth, and we're not afraid of whatever the world has in front of us, not because the world is 100% a, 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 a safe place. We know that's not true, right? But because we know that God is with us, because we know that God will, will hold us and protect us and keep us. So John goes on to say, if we are living in the light, the way that God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sin. Uh, again, just in these few simple verses, we see this truth that I think is so easy to hear and so difficult to truly grasp, that the goal of our faith is to live 
as we were created, as God made us and as God calls us, not in our shadow work. So friends, here at the end of the summer, I just want to leave you with this one really important truth. And I, I, I don't know how better to say it than this. Uh, the Enneagram is not a tool that gives you a new to-do list. The way that you heal, the way that you quit living in your shadow is not by coming up with a list of new things to do, to work really hard at, and to ace, right? I know it's back to school time, right? So it's, it's, not, it's not a new list of things to master. Okay. The way we heal is by learning to sit in the loving gaze of God. And uh, Ian Cron, the spiritual director that we've been quoting, that, that wrote, wrote, co-wrote the book that we've been working on, when, when I heard him speak about Enneagram, he said, uh, think about when you've seen a mother with her newborn and she just can't quit looking at that kid, Right? And again, all that kid does is poop and cry and eat, right? It's not like the kid is uh, deserving of any kind of love, right? There's not, the kid has not earned any love, right? There's nothing that this literally helpless little bundle of flesh has done to earn anything. And yet, the mother is completely captivated. Ian Cron says that's, that's how God looks at each of us. And our shadow persona, our shadow self can't believe that. Our shadow can't believe that there's someone that is that good, that is that loving. All our shadow knows is fear, anger, and shame. And so the, the work of spiritual direction, the work of spiritual transformation is learning to allow ourselves to just sit in the loving gaze of God and allow ourselves to be loved. And for some reason, that is the most difficult thing for us to do. We would much rather have a to-do list because then we can either finish it or fail it, but then it's on us, right? We are in control. What we can't do is just sit and do nothing and allow ourselves to receive pure, unearned love. And yet, if we want to overcome our shadow selves, if we want to be someone who is truly free to love the world the way God loves the world, that only happens when we sit in the loving gaze of God. And so friends, I know that uh, you know we've been working on Enneagram all summer. We're probably gonna keep working with it. It seems like we all dig it quite a lot and like it, and it's been a helpful tool for us. So it's not the last time you're gonna hear about it. It's gonna become language. It's gonna become very familiar here at Catalyst. Um, but I never want us to lose sight of the fact that what it is is a diagnostic tool to help us understand our shadow selves, the selves that want to squirm out from God's loving gaze and go back to hiding in the dark, where, where we think it's safe. But there's nowhere that's safer, there's nowhere that's better for us than in the loving light of God's grace. So I want to move towards communion this morning, move towards response with that in mind. I want to invite you to the communion table, and I want to do a prayer of examine today that is a way to help us just reflect on the summer, on what God has done with us this summer, and on what God wants to do with us in the fall. Um, 
prayer of examine is a great way to sit in the loving gaze of God because we're just asking God to show us who we are. We're praying with the psalmist like we looked at last week, right? Search me and know me and point out anything in me that offends you. Show me, show me who I am. Show me how you see me. I'm going to offer you these questions. I'm going to invite you to prayerfully reflect on them. And then we're going to pray together and receive communion together. So here's the first question I want you to consider. Think back about the summer. How have I embraced God's truth over the summer? Specifically, maybe God's truth about me, right? Where have I done that this summer? Now, when have I still been tempted to hide this summer? Hide from God, hide from other people, hide from myself. When have I been tempted to live as my shadow instead of as my, my authentic self? I think about the weeks that are ahead. Are there ways that I might still be tempted to hide in the weeks ahead? Are there particular relationships or you know, a particular setting where I find my shadow more wanting to come out? finally, how can I choose to walk in the light of God's truth in this next month? What does it look like for me to really cling to who God says I am?
pray together. God, you have gathered us this morning at the end of this summer where we've, we've honestly had a lot of fun uh, using Encanto to look at all of the, these different Enneagram numbers and figuring out which one we are. It's been a process of discernment that I think a lot of us have enjoyed. And so uh, you've gathered us here at the end of this summer journey uh, to remember that all of this ultimately is about spiritual transformation, that you invite us to know ourselves better the way that you know us, to see ourselves the way you see us, so that we might be changed, so that we may set aside the lies that we live in for the truth of who you are and who you say that we are. We confess that that's difficult for us, that it's easier to believe lies and to uh, continue in the ways that we have been because we know them because we're comfortable with them and because uh, change is always scary, even when it's change that, that we've heard is positive. And so we bring those anxieties and those fears with us to the communion table today, and we offer them over to you. In exchange, we receive these elements, whatever they are, whether they're the communion cups we've got here in the building or whatever we've been able to gather uh, remotely. We pray that, that they would be a spiritual food for us, that in receiving them, we might too receive the grace that we need to believe you when you tell us who we really are. Thank you for healing us Thank you for seeing us. Thank you for calling us together as one big family comprised of so many different people from so many different places and walks of life and backgrounds. Thank you for making us your church. We offer these prayers now and we approach your table in the name of your son, Jesus. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared this meal with his disciples and during that meal, he broke bread. He gave it to them and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink, and as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returns. Uh, but now as you're going, uh, I want to remind you that uh, there is just no substitute for sitting in the loving gaze of God. And the best spiritual practices that help us do that are things like reading scripture and prayer, uh, meditating on scripture. And so I just want to challenge you this week to take one of those spiritual practices. If you need to grab our spiritual practices guide, if you're here in the building, there's some on the wall uh, as you leave. If you're virtual, it should be in the links in the description for the YouTube video. They give you a real simple uh, how to read scripture for transformation, you know, not just for information, uh, how to do a prayer of examine like we do before communion each week uh, on, on your own time, uh, but just ways to sit in God's loving embrace uh, because there is no, there's no better way to overcome our shadows than to allow God's light to uh, heal us. And so I just want to challenge you to do that this week. Make it a point uh, to, to not do anything else, not create a whole to-do list of tasks or things like that, but just, especially if you know what the healing message you need to hear is, take that into prayer. Uh, meditate on some scripture that speak to that, to that healing message and allow God to love you. Um, it sounds so simple, but it could be one of the most difficult things for us to do. Uh, because Catalyst, I'm convinced that if we are faithful to do that, God will heal us, God will transform us, and God will make us into people whose love overflows into the world around us. Uh, let's be the best, healthiest versions of ourselves, of our church that we can be uh, for the sake of the world around us. Uh, would you go knowing that God is going to meet us in that and that in God's love there is no fear because God's love casts out fear. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week.